Welcome to this edition of In the Author's Voice. I'm Jeff Williams. The search for the fountain of youth has been the subject of many tales and until recently has largely been a work of fiction. Michael Fossil is a physician and expert in the science of cell aging and human aging. He says science is on the cusp of a revolutionary breakthrough. I recently talked with Dr. Fossil about his research and his new book, The Telmeray's Revolution. Um, I've been writing in this area for 20 years. In fact, I put out the first articles in the Journal of American Medical Association about it about 17 years ago. Um, and we're just finally beginning to try to take this research to human trials. So that's where we are. We're probably about a year or two out from human trials, FDA-sanctioned human trials. And we're going to go after Alzheimer's because it's so impossible, basically. You know, if I went after skin, people would say wrinkles, big deal. L'Oreal's got products. But if I go after Alzheimer's, the answer is everybody knows you can't fix it. In fact, the World Health Organization just two weeks ago said we should give up the curative model. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we can cure it. So, so that's where we are. Also, kind of... It, it... Explain the uh, uh, a little bit, if you can, the, the, the science to us. This is a particular enzyme that you're looking at. Well, it, it's it's the enzyme itself is not the important issue. What think of an orchestra, and you know it it's been playing one tune, and then after time goes by, it plays a totally different tune, same instruments, different tune. In this case, we're going from playing a young tune to playing an old tune, and the the conductor is the telomere. And the question is not is there something wrong with the instruments. The question is can we just reset the score? And the answer is yeah, actually. You do this in human cells as of now 16 years ago, human tissues as of 15 years ago. And the question is, can we do it not only with animals, which we've done since, but can we move to human trials and cure disease? And telomerase sort of is what resets the score for the conductor. The conductor is the telomere. And everybody keeps focusing on the violin and the tuba and the, you know, no, 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 it's not the gene. It's the gene expression. It's the tune they play that turns out to be the difference between young and old cells or sick cells and healthy cells. So we're resetting it. Works pretty well in the lab. What do you see as the you, you mentioned um, you mentioned Alzheimer's as using that as a as a as a way to potentially turn back the the, the clock. What is the what do you see as the is the long range benefit or potential benefits of of this uh, of kind of unlocking uh, this uh, uh, this way of looking and, and utilizing the cells? Well, health, health, health. Um, you know, it, right now there are five drugs on the global market for uh, for Alzheimer's, and none of them affect the progress of the disease. Um, five drug types, I mean, I should say. Um, there are uh, almost literally hundreds of drug well, hundreds of drug trials looking at Alzheimer's, and they've been essentially uniform failures so far. And you could quibble, but it's statistical even, and doesn't show much. Um, so I think one of the options is to actually cure and prevent diseases that we couldn't touch otherwise. But even when you look at other things, for example, osteoporosis, not much we really do. Uh, you know, we replace a, a, a broken joint. Um, and most of the drugs we have have very little effect on, on bone calcium, for example. We've realized recently that calcium supplements have almost no effect whatsoever. Um, same thing where you think about osteoarthritis. Our approach to osteoarthritis is either pain meds or let's give you a whole new artificial joint. Well, what if we could actually reset the gene expression in the joint and regrow a, a more functional joint tissue? I think we could do that. So, yeah, the, the option is to be able to treat diseases we couldn't treat before, treat them more effectively than we could treat before, and frankly, for a lot less money and pain. It sounds amazingly uh, wonderful, and the possibilities uh, just absolutely I incredible. But is there an ethical discussion that goes along with this as well? 
Well, um, in a couple of senses, yes. Let me give you one example. Let's say that um, I'm treating Alzheimer's and we're looking for somebody and you're going to suggest we might use your mother. Well, um, if she's confused, can she give permission to treat? Um, and if she's not confused, say it's very early. Somebody's just said, you know, I think she's got Alzheimer's and barely shows now, but there's going to be a problem. What about the downsides or risks of the, tri- of the trial? Well, that's interesting because in Alzheimer's, we know it's uniformly fatal. The only way you don't die of Alzheimer's if you get it is something else kills you first. And the average lifespan is about eight years. So there's not a lot of ethical question about do you treat somebody with Alzheimer's? Example, let's say that I told you that one in a thousand people would die of the treatment. That's still a lot better than what happens if you don't treat Alzheimer's. Um, but that kind of question needs to be raised. You know, what are the side effects? And we don't know. Um, if I were treating wrinkles, that would be a much tougher ethical question because you have to be very careful of side effects if what you're treating is just wrinkles. But if you're treating Alzheimer's, you know, I, I for one, would go for almost anything. Um, but it brings up another issue, which is what are the ethical issues that come about if what we do is extend the healthy lifespan? Um, and there, it's a little interesting. Uh, society becomes a little disrupted if people live to be, you know, 150 or 200 and they're healthy. What does that do to us? On the other hand, I think that that's, we should be so lucky as to have that choice. Uh, I'd certainly much rather live in a society that had that sort of disruption and problem in question, but was compassionate and tried to cure disease and prevent suffering than I would in, in a society that said, we don't want to take a chance on social disruption and we'll let people die. No, it's, it's an interesting ethical question, all sorts of ethical questions, but it boils down to compassionate care for human beings around you, to me. You'd mentioned that, that this potentially would be a much more uh, cost-effective way to, to, to treat Alzheimer's. Um, how so? Is it, is, is it well, you know, once we create the process, then it's, it's, it's easier than, than research and development on a new drug? Or, or, or how does this... Well, well, right now, as I say, the drugs that we have out there are ineffective. And they're not all that expensive, but they're expensive enough. The major expense for Alzheimer's, as you know, besides the human costs are the financial costs to insurance, government, and families. Um, people literally go broke trying to cover nursing care costs, and governments are finding the same sort of problem, and they're beginning to panic as they look ahead with the increased age span and people getting Alzheimer's and, and nursing, co- nursing care costs going up in nursing homes. Um, and I think we can undercut that entire problem. Let me give you an analogy. If I went back to 1950... Um, and I look at some of that literature, there was a lot of concern regarding the cost of iron lungs and nursing care and rehab for kids with polio. Now, that's not an issue now. The reason is we don't have iron lungs. We don't have nursing care for, for polio victims. We don't worry about rehab costs because people don't get polio anymore. I think that's the same thing that we're dealing with here at Alzheimer's. Right now, governments worldwide, the World Health Organization, is panicking about the cost of nursing care for Alzheimer's. I think that that's not going to be a problem at all. I think we'll be able to treat it very cost-effectively or a lot less than we treat most other diseases now, certainly less than it costs to replace your knee. You'd you'd mentioned that that, that you've been working on this research for uh, for a number of years, and you're getting it to the, as I understand correctly, you say that you're getting it to the point now you're ready to try for for human trials? Yeah, a lot of the research for the past 20 years has been academic. For example, the, the 2009 Nobel Prize was one for um, elucidating or looking at the, the, the shape of the telomerase molecule, how it works. Um, but none of that was clinical. And the clinical work is only now beginning to get off the ground. 
So we anticipate FDA sanctioned human trials in a year or two as soon as we uh, make sure that we can convince them that this is a reasonable thing to do. That's where we are now. You talk, you use the analogy, and it, and it was, and it, and it made perfect sense to the, <laughs> to the layman on this end of the microphone on, on uh, uh, the with the analogy of the orchestra and kind of retuning things. Is it just these few cells that we that we that we see this in, or or, or is it wider spread throughout the? Uh, it's the it's throughout most yeah it's throughout most of the body, but sometimes it's not the cell itself that's the the problem. Um, let me give you an example. You know, in the brain, the neuron by itself doesn't age much, but it turns out the neuron is absolutely dependent on a number of other cell types that do show aging. For example, microglia, they're called in astroglia. The same thing happens in the heart. The heart muscle cell itself doesn't age much, but that's not where the problem is. Um, the problem is in your coronary vessels that supply blood to the muscle. Um, so, for example, uh, we know that cholesterol doesn't deposit in heart muscle, but heart muscle buys its cells to have cholesterol deposits in the vessel in the aorta and in the coronary arteries, for example, you end up with problems. So throughout the body, what we're seeing is we've got what are sort of innocent bystander cells, like neurons or muscles, that end up dying of, in this case, Alzheimer's and heart disease, where it's some other cell that's, that's causing the problem, in this case, microglia or endothelial cells in, in the coronary vessels. So it's, an, it's a problem throughout your body, and all of the major diseases that kill you, you know, most people will die of, of, for example, the uh, heart disease, vessel disease, atherosclerosis. And that all has to do with aging cells that line the vessels. And the same thing is true distantly of Alzheimer's, too. Do you know, in, it may be too early in, in, in the research process, but if we start m- making these modifications, for lack of a, of, a, of, a, of a more correct term, are there any potential risks to other cells? Are we potentially, I mean, might there be side effects of, of, of this process? Well, the major question for 20 years has been cancer. And it turns out that that's a more complex question than people realize. It turns out that, that some cells, when they're very old, uh, well, they stop repairing their DNA very well. So naturally they get more mutations and you're more likely to get cancer, which is the rate, why the rate of cancer goes up with aging. But it turns out that if you reset the telomeres, you stabilize the genes. They become less prone to mutation, less prone to cancer. So the question of what happens if I take an old person and reset telomeres? Do I get a risk of increased cancer or not? So far, the answer turns out to be not as much as we thought, if at all. We just don't know the details yet. Um, There is some risk, but we used to think it was big, and now it turns out to be either small or perhaps even non-existent. It's hard to tell. It's not nearly as big as we thought it was. Just the whole concept seems uh, incredibly exciting. Did you think you would get to this point in time? Well, actually, I sort of thought that we'd get to this point in time 20 years ago, Um, and we almost did. There was a a time back in 2001 where somebody offered me more than a billion dollars to take all of this to translational human research, and then their funding fell through. Um, So I thought we'd get there early, and we're getting there, but it's not only slow, but it's too slow. You know, if I manage to, to get this up and running within, say, three or four years, there's still a number of people who've died of Alzheimer's. So there's no such thing as too fast in some sense. And yet we want it to be safe, we want it to be effective, and we want people to understand that it's credible and works. It matters to us. So is it, a, is it a funding issue or was it a technology issue? It was sort of both. I mean, part of the problem is that people never quite understood how aging and age-related diseases work. They have these, these simple models that aren't true. They think it's just a matter of, well, damage happens, things rust, what do you expect? 
Um, I, I give you an example. I saw a gorgeous picture the other day of a 1930 Duesenberg. Absolutely <laughs> beautiful car. Gorgeous and I compare car. that to my car. I mean, my car is probably three years old. It's got rust spots. What's the difference? Is it because the Duesenberg was so well built? No, it's because people loved it, took care of it, repaired it, recycled, fixed it on an almost a daily basis. And that's the difference between, um, you know, cells that, that age and cells that don't. It's, it's, it's a matter of things repairing. But people tend to look at the human body and think it just falls apart. No, it's not a matter of the damage. It's a matter of the repair that's the issue. If you repair your Duesenberg, it'll last forever. If you treat your car like my car, it's going to age pretty fast. But, you know, that's the problem. People kept thinking, it's just a matter of damage. No, it's more to it than that. Yeah. Doctor, is a lot of this... You mentioned the care that we put into it. Is a lot of it, in addition to the to the science behind it, is there also um, a fundamental, not maybe not fundamental, but a shift in mindset and how we approach and think of taking care of our own body? I think there needs to be. Um, uh, you know, people people tend to think that they just took care of it well enough that it would last forever. And in the sense of what you and I do, that is exercise and diet and so forth, that's not true. If you have, if you don't take care of your body, it will age faster. But I don't care how well you take care of it; it won't, won't, it will continue to age, unless we do something a little more dramatic. Here's another analogy. Back to the polio analogy. In 1951, there was a best-selling book called uh, "Diet Conquers Polio." Well, we didn't have an immunization for polio in 1951, and if I were a worried parent, I'd be worrying about diet and exposure to other kids at the local swimming pool and things people are worried about. But that was not the answer. There was a mindset change because there was a technologic change. We realized we could do something about polio. But the same thing's true here. I'm not saying people shouldn't eat right and exercise, fasten their seatbelt, do all those things that we know are true. But we need something a little more dramatic, and it's more than just a mindset. It's something basic and our basic understanding about aging and disease. Because I'm looking through uh, looking through the book, and I, I, I just flipped to the back, and and uh, you, you ask a question, wh- which world will we choose? Is that kind of where we are in the whole medical and, and health discussion right now? I see this sometimes. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, you know, sometimes people say, should we should we um, interfere with uh, nature? Or, in a religious sense, should we sometimes, they say, interfere with God's will? Um, and to that, my answer is, and it again goes back to the ethics of this, of compassion, um, if if I'm you know I've been a physician now for decades, and if I have a four-year-old hit by a car on her bicycle, um, I could claim that that's God's will and let her die. I wouldn't. That's not me. I could say the same thing for a, a 40-year-old woman with cancer. I could say the same thing for a 70-year-old person with Alzheimer's. To my mind, um, God's will and nature's way and, and compassion all actually go together. And the answer is, that's why we're here to make those lives better. As a physician, I can't stand by and let someone suffer needlessly. I'd like to step in and make their lives better, whether it's the 40-year-old on the bike or the the 40-year-old woman with cancer or the 70-year-old guy with Alzheimer's. Um, No, I'd rather live in a world where people understand that that compassion is a key human feature. You know, it's it's not a matter of, of God's will. It's a matter of human work. The book is out now, and is this an effort to help... Um, raise awareness? Or are you wanting to help to foster the, the the discussion, or what do you hope will will result from from folks picking up the book and uh, reading about your experience? 
Well, partly it's a matter of getting people to understand it. Again, aging is not simply a matter of damage. It's a matter of your body permitting damage to occur. Um, and beyond that, though, it's a way to try to help uh, get someplace with it. It's it's like describing the idea in 1950 that maybe we can cure polio. And what I'm saying is it's time we realize that maybe we can cure Alzheimer's disease. It's not something that you just should live with and be fatalistic about, as I see WHO, the World Health Organization, being. Um, and a lot of people. Uh, you know, I, I know the, the Alzheimer's Association on their website has a web page where they say, uh, learning to live with Alzheimer's. I would prefer if we would learn to live without Alzheimer's. I think it's a preferable choice. And I think the book can help us do that. What is the, um, as you look at now, the, the book is out and you talked about where that kind of the research is and things. Wh what are you looking at now in the next two years or five years? Where do you see this thing progressing? Well, for, yeah, for me, the key is not the book. It's being able to take this to human trials. Uh, we've had a lot of people who are interested in doing things like this, and some people have even talked about doing it you know, offshore or off, as it were, beyond the pale. Um, we're going to do this carefully and right. We're going to go through FDA-sponsored human trials or FDA-sanctioned human trials. So what I see in the next couple of years uh, is our taking it's a, it. We put together a, a biotech company called Telocyte, T-E-L-O-C-Y-T-E. -E. It's on the web. Um, and what we're going to do is make sure we run through human trials and prove that what we know we can do in human tissues and cells and animals, we can do to people, and that it makes a difference. That's where we're going. That's the important thing. That's Dr. Michael Fossil. His new book is The Telomerase Revolution. In the author's voice is a listener-supported service of WSIU and Southern Illinois University. I'm Jeff Williams.